Welcome, everybody, to Wrigley Field for another Baseball America podcast. Along with Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. I think, Jim, this is the third time that we've gone to a uh, Under Armour game. Uh, well, I've been at the game with you. I remember recording one with Matt Blood over in 2008 next to an Elm yeah. Station. Right. Last year, I don't think we recorded a podcast, but it was a too nice of a day. I think I think maybe Nathan Rohde and I did a video podcast. I think you podcast. guys tried to do a video podcast, and there were some technical difficulties. And yes, it. we tried to record one up here in a, in a box. We ended up doing one back in Durham and putting it to video. It was 11 minutes, probably too long. This podcast might go on a little bit long as well, but uh, we'll try to keep it nice and tight because we're before the game here in Chicago, Jim's hometown, uh, adopted hometown, I suppose. But... Uh, but Jim, this game has grown. I remember 2008, the first time they had it in this ballpark. Uh, Nick Franklin was in this game. Max Stassi just called the big leagues up in this game. I think there were like nine big leaguers from that 2008 uh, game. Paco Rodriguez is one of the guys in that game. We also had Donovan Tate in that game, whose fortunes have not gone as well. Of course, Jake Iliopoulos in that game, who committed suicide this past year. I mean, just a... Uh, and I remember he, he made Donovan Tate, I think, look bad on breaking balls. He did. That was his big... Uh, this was Jake Iliopoulos' coming out party. The next year, he's a supplemental or second-round pick and um, did not sign. And just a tragic baseball story. But we, we've covered a lot of great stories over a uh, better part of 16 years working together at BA. We've covered some not-as-fun stories like that one. Um, but all, you know, part of the reason for this podcast, Jim, is uh, this will be your last... Um, podcast as a member of the Baseball America staff. Uh, sorry to see you go. I just want to just tell our listeners and our you know, BA fans kind of where you're going and, and where you where they'll still be able to follow uh, your writing on baseball. Yeah, sure. I mean, starting September 1st, I'll be going to work for MLB.com, and it's uh, it's been a, a strange week. I'm getting my oldest son ready for college and getting ready to, I mean, literally when I return back, we're driving to Boston University, and when I return to Chicago, I'll be working for MLB.com, and it's just, it's still... Does it feel quite real? I mean, as you know, I mean, it's very difficult to leave Baseball America, but it was a good opportunity and one I felt I, I, I need to take. But now, where I was looking, I, I worked at Baseball America for 23 years and two cents. Uh, I, I had like kind of a three year hiatus when we moved up here, which is the only reason I left in the first place. It wasn't that I was unhappy with Baseball America at that time. We were just moving to Chicago, and uh, it, it still feels uh, not quite real yet. Uh, you know, between, you know, like I said, a lot of emotions this week with getting my son ready for college and, and getting ready to switch jobs. And uh, I, I still, uh, I've been trying to write this farewell column. It's like <laughs> literally the last thing I have to do for Baseball America, and it's only about half done. Uh, so <laughs> it, 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 that's been hard to write also. But, uh, yeah. I don't know how you sum up 23 years and 1,200 words. Well, it's not 1,200 words. It's like 850. With I the, think uh, we got we, we can move it out around for <laughs> so, you. But, so that's uh, the least we can do. But we're in a longer web version. We'll put it so. that way. But yeah, I mean, like, one of the things I wanted to just kind of touch on is just how different media landscape is and the baseball media landscape is, Jim. And, I, you know, I wonder if I'm too, if we are too in, you know, I clearly drank the Kool-Aid at BA a long time ago. Um, you hired me at BA. But, I mean, how much has things changed? It just seemed like a job was a very different job in 1988 when you started or 1996 when I started. I mean, I think people... Some people know how much that job has changed and how much the media landscape has changed. But it just feels like Baseball America has been a part of that change. There's been a catalyst for the way the game is covered. Yeah, I think there's there's two ways it's changed. I mean, one is the technology. I was, I was actually talking right. to my, my sister-in-law last night about uh, about going to Barcelona, which I did in 92. Right. And I, mean, I, and I was talking... I we still have your uh, TRS-8. Yeah, we were at the pull-up. I had this, this radio shack where you could make <laughs> three lines of text yeah. at a time. 
And I remember you sent with, I mean, it, I like people remember what, what, acoustic couplers, which were these big, hard rubber plastic, you know, rubber things you clamped onto the phone. They're as ridiculous as they sound. Yes, and and to make matters worse, in Barcelona, which had no baseball before, really after the Olympics, they had the, you know, they built two like really small stadiums for baseball with no roofs. It's like 102 degrees, <laughs> and the acoustic couplers didn't work. So I had to. I had to write out everything longhand, looking at three lines at a time at the radio shack, and then fax it. But what I was going to say is, back in the day, oh, it was just line, there was no internet. Like, like when I covered the Olympics in '92, there was there was no internet. So I wrote out war had not freed the internet up for once yeah. year. Right? Well, we, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it was there was at universities. Yeah. But you know, so we you basically wrote for the magazine every two weeks. Right. Every, you know, which actually there were two issues that were I wrote for when I was at the Olympics or. At the College World Series, same thing. You didn't do game stories. Right. You did game stories if you were stringing for a paper exactly. and didn't send a writer. Like, I covered Pepperine's 92 championship for the L.A. Daily News. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But you didn't have to do game stories. You just you, you, you took this broad view. And I remember all the newspaper reporters were like, oh, God, jeez. You know, right. Nice job to have. Um, and so I think from a technology standpoint, it's changed. Obviously, now with the Internet and Twitter... Everything's instantaneous. You know, people aren't waiting to get their morning paper right. or their two-week magazine filed stuff. But I think also just, and not just because of technology, but, but when, I, when I started in Baseball America, we were really the only people covering the draft, covering college baseball. I mean, basically covering all the things that, that Alan Simpson, who found the magazine, loved, yep. that the Sporting News abdicated, yep. um, the minor leagues. Nobody covered that stuff. Yeah, and then when I started, Baseball Weekly came into being. And so when I would go to these events, Rick Laws, who was at Baseball Weekly, and I would, we're the only two national writers covering the College World Series yep. or the Olympics. Nobody really covered the minors. But now, with the explosion of the Internet, you know, not only is it you know, stuff more instantaneous, everybody has access. If, I, if I'm a, a blogger and I'm in the Midwest League and I want to go to a game and put my thoughts up online, I have a venue. People right. can read my stuff. And so it's just it's exploded, I think, just in the... the Ability to cover it, but also the interest, too. There's so much more interest. I mean, Alan Simpson for years talked about, oh, they should televise the draft. Right. And, and when I started working, or, or at one point when I was working, I think it was right away, we had the ridiculousness where MLB wouldn't even release the draft list. Yeah. You didn't know the draft was top secret. They would release the first round, and otherwise... The, the list would trickle out, but you didn't know if the guy was drafted in the third round or the 80th round. Yeah, Brian Johnson, our ad rep, who uh, went to Wake Forest, was an all-ACC outfielder. Um, he's here, and he was just telling us last night about how Bob Miranda, who was his recruiting coordinator at, at Wake Forest, knew before RJ did that he'd been drafted in 1999. Yeah. Because it wasn't instantaneous. I mean, we, we <laughs> me and Will Lingo, hosted the first draft on MLB.com radio in 2002. I don't know if we were. I was I back. I, guess, I, I know you were back. I was doing, for whatever reason, maybe because you guys were in Chicago. I mean, you guys were in Chicago. I think that was it. Like, yeah. we, like, I just remember squeezing in Melvin up that it was actually BJ up. I mean, the second thing. I mean, like, yeah. You know, like, I was having to talk really fast. Like, it was just, it's amazing. But, like, in 1998, I think we wrote a headline as a BA liberates draft content. Because MLB, actually, when the draft was over, released, they released a fax of all. 50 rounds of the draft. Yeah, because I mean, Alan Simpson used to sit there and he'd call teams and yeah. get the round by round. And they were, I think, again, this is technology time, we were going to, for a small fee, we would fax you the yeah. entire draft in order. Yeah. And MLB found out about it and said, well, this is ridiculous. And they just, we might as well just release the lease. I mean, and then went back to this. We were, yeah, we were, but the fee was pretty high. That's the thing. I think our fee for that was 250 bucks. Oh, really? I didn't know. It was, it was high. It was called Draft Deluxe in 1998, and it was. 
Do you want to work at Scott's? Yeah, Scott's Inc. I seem to recall that that was we, we made a lot of money in a very short time selling people the draft information for a very high price, and uh, we bought five new computers because of it. Well, and the thing that was crazy was MLB teams were giving us the information. I know. I mean, it, it was it was the reason they did that was it was a supposed thought that colleges were using the draft list to go recruit players, which it's not the, the, the idea that the colleges are waiting until June. Like, okay. Oh, now we'll go recruit. Players. And we have so much scholarship money waiting <laughs> around here. Yeah, I mean it was it was crazy, but no, I mean it's just, just the interest. I think is has exploded, and the ability to get information to people has exploded. I mean, I remember. I think we had our first fledgling website back in '96. I don't even yeah. know if you can go in the internet internet wayback machine and find that. I've never even tried to look. That's a great idea. Because I remember at the 96 Olympics, I was doing some daily coverage. Yeah, Dash 96, online? Maybe. And at the 96 College World Series, I was doing some daily coverage. Yeah. But, but nowhere near what we try to do today. And, right. Uh, you know, I, I just remember that was back in the days where you, you could connect it like, oh, you know, now we can connect it 4,800 baud. You know, the right. speed's doubled. This is amazing. <laughs> 4,800 baud. I'm sorry. Well, I remember when I first had America Online way back in the day, it was like 300 baud. Well, the best part is that Jim still has America Online. I mean, like, that, I, that story was on Huffington Post either last year or two years ago. Where, like, only powerful people still have AOL, and, and, and Jim is a powerful Well, person. it was my first email address, and anybody who's ever had that address can still uh, still reach me. I, I remember the year, it was actually my oldest son, and it was year 2000, whatever year Brett Wallace was drafted. Where was Brett Wallace? 2008. Okay, the year Brett Wallace was drafted, I remember telling my son, I was like, man, it'd be cool if you could, like, instant message people's cell phones. And my old son's like, oh, you can. Just put in a plus. And I remember doing, like, our draft projections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was instant messaging Scoundrel the night before the draft. I remember and, you calling me and saying, this is awesome. This I'm is hiring everybody from yeah. that computer. <laughs> so, <laughs> straight to their phone, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, now the technology and, and just the interest and the ability to deliver to people. Is amazing, and now Twitter just the last few years. I mean, yeah. we obviously post stories online, but like, you know, Baseball American, when guys sign or there's news, we tweet it out and then follow up with the story, uh, you know, which is amazing. I mean, I use Twitter as a, I'm sure like a lot of reporters do, as a news feed, not as a, right. hey, I'm having this for lunch or, you know, here's what I'm doing, but I mean, it's a way to follow what people are, are reporting and stay on top of things. Yeah, it definitely has changed things. Um, you know, and, and like I said, I mean, so you're obviously you're still going to be covering. It sounds like a lot of the same things that you're covering, right? I mean, you're covering yeah. the draft. You're still going to be covering baseball from a scouting and player development point of view. I guess to me, that's the other biggest change. Like you said, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we were the only ones who did that. And it really does feel, for better or for worse, for Baseball America, like so much of the industry covers baseball with scouting and player development, at least in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think if I mean. I th- you know, and I've had a number of beat reporters tell me this, and a lot of the guys who work for us work for us not because they're getting rich, you know, with you know writing a report every other issue, or every issue, but because it forces them to stay on top of the minors. Yeah. And there is an interest, and I think, you know, I think fans are more aware, just like teams obviously are aware, that the the easiest and most cost efficient way to build your team is to have a homegrown team through the draft internationally, not going out and signing right Albert Pujols for two hundred plus million dollars or A Rod for two hundred plus million dollars. Those Contracts don't uh, don't work out too well a no. lot of times. Uh, which yeah, I was actually thinking while I was driving over here, if you were going to ask me what's the one thing that we never did that we talked about, and I was thinking in the facetious sort of way, you know, my story idea. Yeah. That the podcast would never happen for good reasons of good taste. But that I, I had this idea, and I think it actually came up while well, maybe at an Under Armour game. Or it was here at the College World Series. 
Where, like, if you had, if teams were allowed <laughs> to kill a player to get his contract off the books, would they take advantage of that option? And for the purposes of good taste, we will not go into depth. But I was actually thinking about that idea as I was driving over here today. I mean, was there ever a more tailor-made situation for that than what's going on in New York and yeah. the right now? <laughs> exactly. But, but I actually, I came up with three or four guys that I won't for their purposes of good taste. But that was, like, the one thing we always talked about, like, the podcast that we couldn't really do. Um, I was thinking about that today. Like, there were a couple That's other kids as well. And then, and then when, when I... When I Mentioned those guys, it popped back in my head. But but anyway, no, I think the reason that people co- cover it is, is there, there's so much importance. I mean, you look at the Rays; they right. went from you know being a nothing franchise to you know a contender, and they did it almost you know solely with in-house talent. Right. You know, and these were guys we've been writing about in Baseball America. It's amazing how they maintained it without in-house talent. That's the crazy part. Yeah, <laughs> they maintained it with guys that get in trades, but they're so good. I think in development trading for other teams minor leaguers like Chris Archer who couldn't throw strikes right and now with the Braves he throws strikes I mean uh, but you know they're they're a funny franchise but there's so many different ways to do it I think one of the things I've learned working with you is there's so many different ways to do it but you have to have that scouting and player development aspect nobody no team in the time I've been at BA has maintained excellence solely through out of house Acquisitions, and I think we're seeing it over the team of the Yankees. Yeah, uh, they're competitive, but uh, they're not what they want to be. And one of the big reasons is they haven't had enough homegrown talent, so they're having to you know, look at you know they have to go out and get Alfonso Soriano, and have to go out and get uh, to re-energize. <laughs> of all things, of all guys, Alfonso Soriano to re-energize your club. He's really actually kind of done that. Um, I wanted to just ask you a couple personal, uh, not personal, but. Uh, you know things that you and I have done specifically that have been fun. I mean, I guess the things that have changed the most again some of these events that like 15 years ago, like you know, I didn't go to the first Futures game, but like going to Futures games together and seeing how that event's grown, uh, or going to Calibre Series together and how that event has grown. This year we both were there with our sons. Um, and college baseball, I guess, Jim, is the thing that you know you handed off to me. I mean, college baseball just. Completely different world than it was when you were the beat guy in 1996. Yeah, we were talking about this, and we talked about this off, off the, off the air. I think everybody who's had the college baseball beat of baseball America does not want to give, give it up. up. <laughs> I mean, I only really gave it up. I mean, I, I, looking back, I mean, I was the managing editor of Baseball America and the college. Granted, this was pre-internet, right? But in the college baseball guy at the same amazing. time, um, because I didn't want to give up the college baseball part of it. Um, it's a tough beat to give up. No, I mean it's. Uh, Again, there's something, I mean, we were talking about it this, this year with the regionals. I mean, ESPN had their, essentially, the ESPN Red Zone version of yeah. the regionals where they were going from game to game to game. So I, awesome. I remember calling Aaron Fitt that night, and he was out, I think, at the UCLA yeah. regional, and I called him, it was late, it was like 11 o'clock, I was like, I can't believe how awesome this is. Yeah. I never could have conceived of this. I mean, when I first started covering it, I think we had 48 teams in the regionals, right. instead of 64. Um, you did have a game of the week on ESPN, but that's before ESPN got Major League Baseball. And then right. once ESPN got Major League Baseball, base, you know, college baseball basically did, did, disappeared from national TV. By the way, while you're talking, you should watch Milton Ramos take infield. He's the guy in the darker uh, uniform. And Milton Ramos, he might be my personal cheese ball for the 2014 draft already. That guy has got wicked good actions, and uh, he has tremendous flair for the game. A unnecessary mustard. But that's all right. Um, but yeah, the college baseball is changing. But you, you never see someone like Milton Ramos in college baseball. He's committed to Florida Atlantic, the regional I did this year on TV, yeah. which was just ho hum. And then the last game, the last two hours, TV just blew up. I went crazy. That's what that 
that development in college baseball did was that would have just been an apocryphal story almost, you know, or just a, well, a yeah. story nobody knew about 15 years ago if you had a regional like that. When I started coming to John, I mean, I, I think they had regionals on TV, but it would more like ESPN would pick a regional and broadcast on a regional. Yeah. You wouldn't have gotten all the regionals. But when I started covering, again, this can make me sound like Old Man Callis. Yeah. This is how we would get releases in the mail yeah. from, from the schools. That was a way you should keep up with what was going on. And the big day was Monday where you'd have the, and it wasn't even the plain paper fax. You had to make sure before you went home Sunday night that the fax machine was fully loaded. With that crazy that's old paper. Yeah. That's how we did our, our poll. You yeah. get teams with fax results, and if they didn't fax, then I would have to come in the next morning and call and find out, okay, well, what did Arizona State do if Arizona State didn't send a fax? And that was my, that was my first, one of my first tasks was that year, spring of 97, we had to call the schools that didn't, um, <laughs> that did not send fax, or we didn't get their faxes. And you'll remember Wichita State. I was called to get their scores early in the year. They played a college named Viterbo, V-I-T-E-R-B-O. This all actually happened the year after you left in 1998. I called to get Wichita State scores. I thought that was the Turbo. <laughs> so they beat Turbo. It was in my. It was in the, the, the worksheet as the Turbo College. It's like they played Friends. They probably played Friends also at that point. But now, and so to get back to the regionals, you know, now you can watch all the regionals. Pretty much live, or you have the red zone, you know, the super regional, yeah. you know, amazing coverage. But back when I did it, like during regional time, it was like a thrill to get like the fact, like, oh, here comes a fax, and you would get the box scores fax after every game is complete. Here comes, here comes a fax, and or like, okay, we're going to call on distance, which was probably 25 cents a minute back then. <laughs> right. We'll call the press box. And use the MCI, use the Eva Save a Lot phone number, whatever that was. Yeah, so I mean, it was, um, it, it's so much more accessible to people. Uh, yeah, I mean, they didn't have, I mean, they had the area code games when I started, and they might have had East Coast Pro. I don't even know if they had East Coast. I know they had those Team 1 showcases. The showcases were just starting. Yeah, I mean, but you didn't have events like this. You didn't yeah. have the, the you know, what was the Affleck game, and it's now right. yeah, the perfect game, All-America game. I mean... And that's the thing is, to me, we were actually just talking about this. I think it was a scout who told me and Clint this yesterday, and we're going to try to research it. The... Improved rate of high school hitters in the draft. Is there a better, a higher success rate for high school hitters? And are the elite high school hitters, the guys who go to all the showcases and go to these events like the Manny Machado's world, Mike Trout, are they moving quicker because they're not all their first day in the minor leagues by a bigger stadium, or they're not all the first day they step into a major league park because they've already played them? And that was just well, they're not odd by seeing more quality stuff when you right. come to showcase. Also, another good point. That and, and they have so much more exposure to wood. Yeah. That's that's the one. That was uh, the scout's point. Um, but I, I'll share a couple of stories and we'll wrap up because we don't want to take, we do have to do some work. But uh, I always remember uh, college series we covered. I guess it was LSU 2000, 2001, probably 2000. 2000, I think it was. Jean Ejim, the block post loss to the in the, in the ether. Uh, where we met the big ragu at the Drover, ate the Drover ragu. basically every night. Um, the crew of ragu was there. I mean, <laughs> I don't remember about that Melbourne series besides uh, LSU's ridiculous comeback off Justin Lane in, uh, to, to beat to win the championship was uh, eating a lot of steak at the Drover, played a lot of Sega hockey. That's right. <laughs> Having fewer kids. I had no kids. You had, what, two at the time in 2003? Because Beth would have been... It just would have just turned one. Well, Anne was wearing it, I guess, that week. Cause you, came, you came for the whole trip, didn't you? Come yeah, I did. I did back in 2000. So That's kind of hard to believe. Well, we had our fourth kid. I remember in 2001, 
We had our, our, our fourth uh, daughter, Susie, whose birthday, is, we're recording this on the 24th, it's actually her birthday today. We right. had a party last night, so nobody thinks I'm a bad father. And Happy birthday to Susie. We're going out to dinner tonight, or after the game, I'm racing back home. But um, in 2001, when Susie was born, we were doing a bunch of renovations to our house, dad, bedrooms, and living with her dad, who won't listen to the internet. So I can say that was not the most fun summer uh, <laughs> with three kids over at her dad's house. But uh, I remember I went to the College World Series, I actually went to the College World Series, and Anne would have been uh, seven months pregnant at the time. And when I came back, she's like, please don't go to the Futures game. So I did not go to Seattle that year. She's like, I need you here. Yeah, so I, I did not go to the Futures game. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's uh, yeah, and that's a funny thing too. I mean, just talking about baseball America. When I st- when I started, when I started as an intern, there were three full time editorial full editorial employees. So yeah. Alan Simpson, John Shear, Danny Nobler, John Royster, right? Well, no, John Royster actually hired the summer I was an intern. Okay. And Mary Jo Mana was kind of part production, part um, part editorial, but not. I mean, they, so anyway, it was very small. And Alan had three young kids. Only one married. Yeah. And now, I mean, I haven't done a, a child count of Baseball America, but, I mean, there's a decent amount. It's like nine off the top of my head. At least nine, Not yeah. counting yours. Yeah. So there's another team counting yeah. yeah, so anyway, you know, Baseball America went from yeah. a very small staff and a very young staff to, you know, everybody. I remember when we hired Dean Georgi, and I don't think he ever worked with Dean. No. Uh, Dean was, like, the next guy hired after me. Um, and, you know, John Royster, as you said, came on, the late John Royster, who, you know, still missed terribly. Yeah. yeah, John, 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 who was a full-time employee this summer, I was an intern, but Dean was the next guy hired after me, and I remember Dean had a wife, and that was just, like, shocking that somebody else was actually exactly. married on the staff, and after that, I mean, I mean, I don't know who the next person, you know, Schwartz was single, you know, it was a while before we hired, I mean, I guess Will was probably married when we hired him. Yeah, I think he was. Um, but, because I don't think you were, you were married, married no. um, when we hired you, and... That's one of my great regrets of uh, your time of BA, I didn't have, you didn't come to my wedding, because I, uh, you I was not invited to BA, and you weren't invited. <laughs> So you went back to BA, what, in April? May of 2000, yeah. And see, we got married May 6, 2000. I would come back. So I would, I would come down. And I felt like we didn't talk while you were at Stats, yeah. so I should have invited you guys. It's one of my great regrets. Um, I'll share a couple other of my favorite stories. Number one, I think people at the office will be remiss if I don't give you my Jim Callis impersonations. Uh-oh. One of my favorite impersonations. Just slide the glasses at the end. Throw in the word joke every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically every impersonation that I do has one or two keystones. Why for you is so much a joke and <laughs> trying to laugh with my mouth closed. <laughs> well, here's the other I got it from this out. We mentioned Susie. Whenever John's name comes up, Susie always asks <laughs> if he's the guy who. Susie gets a kick whenever I talk to John on the phone. If we're if we're not on speakerphone, she can always tell I'm talking to John. Because we start talking louder. I think John and I talk louder and we talk over each other. And we are. I, 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 I never alert John. Like, many times I'll be talking to John when I'm picking up my kids from school. And I'll often, because you can't talk, you know, hands-free, I'll right. have John on speakerphone. And I won't, I'll, I'll start the conversation without the kids in the you car. You have told me about this law in Illinois that you can't, that you have to have on hands-free. So I should know by now. But so anyway, so I'll go pick up the kids. And when they get in the car, I'll, like, give them a sign, like, you know, on the phone, so just keep quiet. But, like, John invariably will throw out some profanity, and then, and then my daughters will kind of giggle. So, so, so Susie knows John as the person who I talk louder and I interrupt when I talk to him. Although I think I interrupt a lot of people. And, two, that we talk. She, she looks at us, I think, as, like, Kornheiser and Wilbon on PTI. So she, she always thought that we should have, like, a TV show. One day she walked in while I was watching PTI, and, and it reminded her of you, of you and me talking. That could still happen one day. You never know. But yes, that uh, that's how uh, Becky would always. Uh, she always enjoyed it. Back before I always we always talked on the cell phone. She always enjoyed when you call the office, call the house and be like, 
your boyfriend Jim. Here you go. So <laughs> that was always her. That was always her code word. So some of those late night uh, top 200 phone calls. Some of the things about BA that we love the most about it. Also the things that you won't miss doing the handbook, which I think baseball fans and BA is always indebted to you for starting that book and making that book what it is. I feel that that is going to be a burden, but when I like, feel like I have to live up to this off season to do that book. But the analogy I keep telling people, Jim, and this will probably be the way I should end the podcast, is when you lose out of pool holes, you don't go out and sign out of pool holes. You have to find out Alan Craig. You have to find Matt Carpenter. So I don't know if I'm as pure as Matt Carpenter's swing, but that's how that's how I keep telling people that Baseball America will move on in a post-Jim Cowles world, and we've lost... A ton of talent at BA over the years. Alan Schwartz, an unbelievable talent, unbelievable storyteller and reporter. Alan Simpson, found the magazine for crying out loud. Kevin Goldstein, tremendous talent. Um, Josh Boyd. Josh Boyd, the prospect maven, the guy who invented it. So we've lost a lot of talent. We've never lost anybody like you. Somebody who combines competence and passion and um, such a good friend everybody so I'll miss you but I'm excited for you I'm very happy for you I just really respect you personally and professionally so thanks I'm sorry that at age 41 I can't do this it's okay John about leaving my I'll just say I, I feel the same way about all you guys. I mean, that was the, the toughest part of, of leaving was, was leaving the people behind. I mean, I, I'll, I'll look at – this is why I've had a hard time writing my farewell column. Um, and and it's, uh, it's still half done, even though I'd hoped to have it done yesterday. But uh, well, this is one of the parts I respect the most. <laughs> <laughs> you can do this without turning into like uh, oh, a an idiot. But wow. I can't, there's a TV character. Well, I was thinking, I was thinking of Jerry Maguire. Like, like with, with, with Rob Sidwell talking that's about the right. Roy, I'm not going to cry. That's but, right. I'm not going to cry. But, uh, that's right. But no, it's like, I mean, it's like one of the lines that I, I have written in the, the yet-to-be-completed uh, farewell column is, like, the hardest part about leaving is it's not like I'm leaving a place of work. It's like a family. Um, you know, I, I have so much respect and love for everybody at Baseball America. And, and, and one of the things I do feel good about is it makes it a little easier to leave is I know it's in good hands with you and Will, both of whom I, I hired you know, right. years ago. Um, you know, it's going to be good hands. I mean, I, I just met Clint Longenecker a few years ago. But I, I mean, a few years ago, a few minutes ago. But I've heard a lot of good things about Clint. You know, Josh Norris has come aboard. I haven't met Josh. Right. There's been more hires. Uh, you know, Baseball America's always kept going, so I'm not worried about, about that. I, I, I won't miss I, – I will miss being part of the Prospect Handbook. I won't miss the hours of the Prospect Handbook in the offseason. But, uh, but, no, I mean, it's uh, – the, the toughest part about leaving Baseball America is the people, and uh, it, it's it, the, the, the magazine has meant so much to me, not just professionally but personally. I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell this story and I'll, I'll give the short version. Uh, you know, it's like I met my wife through Baseball America. Right. I met my wife on a blind date with Alan Schwartz, and it's it, it's funny. I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wax here for a couple minutes. <laughs> How these things work? I remember yeah, Alan Schwartz, who's a tremendous writer. And I think anybody who knows Alan would describe Alan as persistent. No doubt. I remember, and this is pre-internet, Alan Schwartz calling the office to pitch us a story. Ken had this outfielder who had done well in the Cape. <laughs> we should do a story on him. Called me at the end of the summer. He played well in the Cape. And it was Doug Glanville who actually had a major league career. Plays an item. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> Doug Glanville. And so it was the end of the summer. It's like, we don't need a story. But anyway, we're doing the college preview. We're doing features. It's like, you know, Doug Glanville was an obvious guy. 
and I tracked down Alan Schwartz, who was at the National at that point for its brief right. time. Right. And then Alan wrote the story, and between getting assigned the story and writing the story, the National went under. And so Alan was looking for a job, and we wound up hiring him. Uh, you know, and he really raised the bar for writing at Baseball America. I think Josh Boyd raised the bar for Process scouting writing. detail. Absolutely. And Alan Schwartz raised the bar for writing. And, and when we had the Alan Schwartz kind of friendly rivalry with Mike Berardino, yeah. we, we had some amazing features being cranked out. I mean, worked with Mike, but I was remiss in not throwing Mike in there because Mike's the reason I know about Baseball America through his sister. So. So, so they raised each other's. They raised each other's. Raised each other's case. So anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm telling the story too long. So anyway, I remember this chance phone call. Alan Schwartz pitching me this Doug Glanville story. And I remember there was a guy at the Daily Pennsylvania, and I tracked him down, and they all remembered Alan. Even though he wasn't there, they, they wow. couldn't touch with him. But I met my wife, Alan, was uh, was was dating a girl who was, I guess, going to Duke Medical School, who had been a sweet mate of my wife when they went to Williams College together. Wow. And my wife was coming to town for business. Going to, she attended Fuqua at Duke for business school for two years. I was new to town, and I met her on a, on a double date. The Schwartz set up, and if Alan's listening to this, Alan will say, oh, I had to talk Jim into it, which is not true, and I have no reason to lie about it. That's my favorite story. I have no reason to lie about it, because it's not like my wife would be offended, but uh, but I, I, I figured, hey, you never know, you'll meet somebody, and like, I met my wife, and you know, now we have four kids, the oldest who's going off to college, and I remember... A wife who, Baseball America, is a debt of gratitude to... Who, who, who will not miss the prospect handbook. <laughs> or the draft. She, she was okay with the draft, I think. The plus with handbook, is just, I, I've, I've already heard many times about how the falls would be a little bit more palatable. But I, you know, I'm just Alan Simpson hiring me, and I remember, you know, getting hired back in 88, you know, like I had a good internship working on the draft book and thinking this is the place where I'd want to work. And I remember Danny Nobler, who was now with CBS Sports, gave me some great advice. Like, I was going to meet with Alan the next day. I was to... Alan was going to offer me a job and, and terms and all that. Big $12,000 a year. Well, right? the thing was, I was hoping for fifteen. This is 1980. <laughs> I was hoping for $15,000 a year. And I remember saying something to Danny. Like, and I was kind of thinking that's kind of like the lowest I could probably live on, like, decently. Although, yeah. I think my apartment was 350 a month when I started working at Baseball America. So, again, yeah. this was back in the day. I remember Danny told me some of the best advice I got. And he said, he didn't know what I was going to get offered. But Danny said, uh, he's like, don't lose sight of the opportunity. You know, whatever it gets offered, don't lose sight of the opportunity. And, and one thing I'll always be grateful to Baseball America for was back in the day, if you got hired in the sports journalism for newspaper, you'd go cover high school sports or work the desk. And, and actually, Danny wound up leaving. They, they kind of forced Danny out the door while he was made the decision to do that while he was in Seoul that, you know, you want to be a major league beat writer, you know, right. go do that. And it worked out great for Danny. But with, with Danny gone, I mean, I was, shoot, I was 21 years old and I was covering... You were young for your graduating year. I was. Well, I graduated in December. So, you know, you know, a college World Series I was covering. You know, 21, I was going to Pan-American Games in Cuba, the Olympics. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, Baseball America let me hit the ground running. You know, in those days we had, like I said, three or four people on staff, so you were writing yeah. features left and right. And it's just, you know, Baseball America is, I'll always be grateful just personally and professionally for everything it's done for me and the people that have done for me. And, and like I said, the only thing that makes it, uh, you know, a little bit easier to leave is knowing that it's in good hands. Well, the people who have to play, like they use that Cardinals analogy, I used it with a scout, and he said, ah, oh, it's a good one. It's a good analogy. Well, I hope so, I'm better than Albert Pujols for MLB.com. I don't know. I hope I'm more like, I deliver more like the Mania Ramirez value without the soap opera at the end. Right, but for us, you know, to me, like Aaron Fitz or Matt Holiday. 
I don't know if there's a fat, maybe I'm Matt Adams, I don't know. <laughs> From a body comp standpoint, <laughs> that's the best body comp. Maybe Yadier Molina. Uh, that uh, that would be a, a an up that would be an up uh, an upgrade, but um, you know, Long, Clint Longenecker, Josh Norris, Matt, Eddie, JJ Cooper, we've already got people stepping forward, but it'll be a challenge to uh, replace Jim Cowles. Like I always say, in the office, you know, the more people who are covering baseball from a scouting and player development point of view, that's better for Baseball America. If you get into the game from that aspect, you will always wind up coming back to us, and our challenge is to keep them coming back to us. So. Uh, but it'll be a challenge and it'll be a real loss personally and for us professionally but uh, we're excited for you and it's tremendous for your family and uh, you know it's been a great ride Jim just can't thank you enough you're a great friend well thank you Jen too I mean I feel the same way so so for Jim I hope we'll have you on podcasts yeah uh, still uh, going forward but uh, for Jim for the last time as a Baseball America staffer I'm the quavering John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.